we can ramp up wind and solar as well as storage in pumped hydro and batteries very, very rapidly and at reasonable cost. And we will be building a very cheap and reliable and almost completely clean energy system of the future. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 100 Climate Conversations. I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and future. The series presents 100 visionary Australians who are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, climate change. We're recording live today in the boiler hall of the Powerhouse Museum. And before it was home to the museum, it was the Ultimo power station. Built in 1899, it supplied coal-powered electricity to Sydney's tram system right up until the 1960s. So it's fitting that in this powerhouse museum, we shift our focus forward to the solutions to climate change. My name is Marion Wilkinson, and I've written and broadcast many stories about climate change. My latest book, The Carbon Club, describes the fraught political battles over our climate policy. Throughout these battles, Professor Frank Giotso has been a clear, intelligent voice reminding Australians to keep our focus on what really matters, how to cut greenhouse gas emissions in time to save our planet. Frank Giotso is a Professor of Environmental and Climate Change Economics at Australia's National University at the Crawford School of Public Policy. He directs the Centre for Climate and Energy Policy and is also Head of Energy with the Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions. He leads research on the economics of the energy transition and policies on how we can do it. He's advised governments both in Australia and overseas along with businesses and international agencies. In recent years, Frank has been a lead author doing vital work with the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Please join me in welcoming Frank Giotso. Frank, you have spent a long time researching how the world can avoid dangerous climate change by getting to net zero emissions by 2050. That ambitious target is now just 27 years away, and that's less than the term of many Australian home loans. What do you think are our chances of making net zero in time? Oh, Marion, our chances are really high to achieve this. Uh, the Australian economy is very greenhouse gas emissions intensive, in part because of our heavy reliance on coal traditionally, right, in coal-fired power stations like this building used to be. Um, but uh, we're also extremely rich in the alternatives, in the clean energy alternatives, uh, we're one of the places in the world where you can expand wind and solar at an almost infinite scale and at relatively low costs. And that's the future of our energy system. That's the future of our industrial system as well. Um, and we actually benefit from the fact that the old system in Australia is relatively old. We haven't built many of these traditional fossil fuel installations 
uh, in recent years and in fact recent decades. Uh, and the, the old kid is aging uh, and so we can transition relatively quickly. And of course we won't be at zero emissions in Australia by 2050. There's no way. Um, but we also have tremendous opportunities to take up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, sequester it, Negative emissions, we call that, carbon dioxide removal, and that can make up for the remaining emissions that will inevitably be part of the system. Well, Frank, I have always admired your dogged optimism over the years about our future. And I was wondering, do you think you were influenced by your upbringing in Germany when, as a teenager, you saw dramatic change, change for the better, with the fall of the Berlin Wall? and the end of the Cold War? That is a really interesting question, Marion. And so, you know, uh, every once in a while we see or even experience really, really major change, major change that you might not even expect it could happen, right? And that looks really, really scary at the time. That looks perhaps like a problem that is so large that it can't be solved, right? And then when you look back at it, there's usually a resolution for it, right? It's crunchy, it's difficult, things don't always go to plan, certainly don't go to plan, sometimes don't really go well in, in all respects, but the outcome is oftentimes much better than you might expect when the thing first happened. And, you know, German reunification, um, fall of the wall, you know, the, the fall really of Eastern Europe, Eastern European regimes, um, all of that at the time looked firstly like something that would not happen within my generation, and I was a very young person then. And secondly, when it did happen, it looked like something of such scale and tremendous difficulty that it might throw the German economy into recession for decades to come. It might uh, dramatically lower living standards across the country, all of that. None of these bleak uh, kind of visions actually eventuated. You know, it wasn't easy. It was a hard road for that country. But certainly the outcome is one that is probably in many ways much better than most people expected at the time. Um, and certainly I'm optimistic in that, in that regard, also regarding the greenhouse gas challenge. Well, you didn't begin your climate change journey until you came to Australia. And a lot of people would have thought, wow, leaving Berlin in the 90s to come to Canberra? <laughs> <laughs> How did that happen? Oh, well, it's love that brought me to Australia and then I quickly fell in love with the country as well. Um, I, I came to, uh, to Canberra actually to study at the ANU. Uh, it was the go-to place, still is the go-to place uh, in terms of studying the economies of Southeast Asia, which was my primary interest at that point. Um, and then uh, the Kyoto Protocol uh, was signed that year that I was studying there for my master's and that really got me hooked on climate change. I was going to ask you about that because there were many people of your generation who were really inspired by Kyoto. And that was really the landmark United Nations Climate Change Conference uh, back in 1997. Why do you think it had such a motivating effect on you and some of your colleagues? Well, when you take an economic view um, of world affairs, then you would typically estimate that uh, questions uh, of global coordination uh, about a long-term problem are nearly impossible to solve. 
like climate change, because, you know, the old argument, Australia constitutes one and a half percent of global emissions, and hence it's not really in Australia's interest to do anything about it, etc., etc. Um, the Kyoto Protocol was the first tangible effort to actually forge a treaty among nations to address this problem, this global externality together. Right, um, And that's just uh, tremendous uh, to see for an economist that uh, despite the inherent adverse incentives for every single country, this can never, nevertheless be done uh, in the sphere uh, of international politics. And so, you know, from that, of course, uh, flow on all sorts of difficult processes of coordination, of backtracking, of sidetracking, of trying to avoid, but also the realization of opportunities that can come with that transition. Well, about a decade later, you land a job on the Garno Climate Change Review. And that was, at the time, the most important work on climate change really being done in this country. It was led by Professor Ross Garno, and it examined, amongst other things, the cost that climate change would have for the Australian economy and what to do about it. For you, out of that amazing volume of work, what do you think was the most important message that came out of it? Well, um, the Garno process indeed was uh, really the defining piece of analysis uh, at the time when we had the first federal government that was taking the climate change issue seriously and in fact made it a centrepiece um, of, of the agenda. Um, the Garno review really um, painted a holistic and very, uh, very rich picture of the challenge on, and of the many different elements uh, that a solution could have for Australia. What stood out for me at the time already was the mindset of possibility, right? And so in contrast to many kind of government reports, right, the Ghana re Review took uh, a, a perspective of how can we do this and took a very long-term perspective as well and didn't get caught up in the status quo, right? So it wasn't a marginal analysis, wasn't an analysis of, okay, so what are a few small things that we can do between 2008 and 2013? No, it asked the question, how can Australia get to the point of being a very low emissions economy and one that successfully deals with climate change impacts by the year 2040, by the year 2050? What does that mean for the country and what does that mean for our economic prosperity? So, so, so it was really sweeping in its um, vision. Yes. But sadly, it also was drowned out in the subsequent decade by all the partisan fighting in Australian politics. You said to me once that you thought the Prime Minister of the day, Kevin Rudd, had made a fundamental mistake by wanting a more technocratic solution and there wasn't enough effort to bring the people with him. What did you mean by that? What went wrong, do you think? And Marion, of course, you're one of the people who knows all of this better than most in this country. Um, <laughs> My, uh, my interpretation of part of what happened at the time under the Rudd government was that there was a, a political determination made um, that the, uh, this issue was best dealt through high-level statements on the one hand, such as, you know, 
Prime Minister's statement at the time of climate change being the greatest challenge facing this generation, um, coupled with a kind of uh, don't worry about the policy, we have this in hand, there's nothing to see here kind of approach to policy, right? And leaving the policy making really to the technocratic system, the government departments, the, the research sphere, uh, of course, of which the universities are, are part of, um, but not, not really. There was a missing middle there uh, in terms of bringing uh, Australians as a whole along in understanding and embracing the particular changes that addressing climate change will mean and, and would mean at the time. Right. So, and so you had ministers on television saying, don't worry about the details of this, it'll work out, you will not be significantly worse off. Right. And that then, of course, um, le- led to a situation where many people felt that they didn't really understand what was going on. And that opened, in my interpretation, the opportunity uh, for the political opposition, right, and also to the opposition uh, among the business community to say, well, if you don't understand it, don't vote for it, which is usually a very successful political strategy, unfortunately. During these difficult years, you kept writing, you kept teaching, but you also did something very important. You began working with the UN advisory body on climate change, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And that's the body that informs world leaders about where the climate science and climate policy is going. Now, you worked on the 2014 report, I think. Uh, That was your first one. It turned out to be an incredibly important report in what came later. Why do you think that report was so important? The 2014 report really was sort of a call to arms in terms of the severity of the problem in front of us. And uh, I think that really was very instrumental at the time to drive home to governments that this is an existential challenge, right? Um, And that uh, temperature rise needs to be kept to below two degrees, which then subsequently, of course, turned into the long-term goal of the Paris Agreement, uh, which is really the fundamental uh, international agreement uh, that to the state and into the future, uh, drives global climate change action. So uh, the report, and, you know, I mean, it's not the IPCC creating the scientific insight, it's the IPCC assessing the state of knowledge and channeling and funneling and validating the scientific insight um, and elevating the insights uh, on, on, on the global stage. So to my mind, that was really the key impact of the 2014 report coupled with an element of we can still do this, right? The assessment of all the opportunities as to how emissions can be reduced and can be reduced rapidly uh, in order for us still to make it through that, through that closing window. Last year, there was an election of a new government in 2022. You and some of your IPCC colleagues have said that our current target by the new government isn't actually as ambitious as it needs to be. Why is that? Why aren't we, in your view, doing enough today? 
Yeah, so Mary, let's let's step back a little bit on 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 ambition, actually, and this comes back to the Paris Agreement because the main thing the Paris Agreement has done is to have all countries in the world um, signed up to a process that, firstly. Uh, requires countries to put forward national emissions targets um, and sets out a clear expectation that these national emissions targets will be ratcheted up over time. Right? So it's a, it's, it's a one-way street of greater ambition. And secondly, signs up all countries to a long-term ambition of staying below two degrees, which, you know, in rough terms can be translated to net zero emissions sometime by the middle of the century. Okay. Um, and so once these things are agreed, they actually become part of how we run world affairs. And they, they do get reflected in cabinet processes and the like all over the world. And importantly, they get reflected on boards of major companies as well. Right? This is taken seriously. Right? And so that, that shapes expectations and that, that shapes political outcomes. And, you know, I mean, fair acknowledgement, even the previous government under Prime Minister Morrison put in place a net zero emissions target for Australia. And it's very important that that side of politics did that because that means absolute durability for that emissions target. Now, um, 2030 target, 43% now, greatly strengthens from 28% earlier on. And so that is a very steep reduction, of course. We're about halfway there. Most of the reductions achieved come from reduced land use change uh, and forestry emissions, uh, some from the electricity sector that's going really rapidly. Um, but, you know, in order for limited, to limit global temperature rise to below 2 degrees with a view to 1.5, we need to see extremely strong action everywhere um, and very, very rapidly. And that action needs to happen at first at an explicitly stronger pace in rich developed countries, and in particular in the countries that have high emissions levels than anyone else. And so Australia is among the richest countries in the world and among the most emissions intensive economies in the world. And so obviously, right, for the world to be on this trajectory, Australia needs to be on a very steeply decreasing emissions trajectory um, more steeply than, than under the present targets. And, you know, 2030 target, that's really only seven years away now. Um, so we're now setting our sights to a 2035 emissions target. Uh, and that's, that's where some of the crunchy decisions will need to be taken. The federal government, the federal minister, says he wants the national power grid to be able to uh, be 82% renewable by 2030. That's in seven years' time. Now, we've had a chorus of uh, business people, of even government advisers, saying we won't make that. It's not going to happen. Now, you've looked at all this. What do you think? We could make it, um, but, you know, not to underestimate just how big a thing that is, right? We have a traditionally coal-dominated electricity supply sector. Coal is plentiful and cheap. Uh, that's the reason. Um, coal is still, you know, fossil fuel is still about two thirds of, of of the power mix now. In and we're talking to yeah, we're talking to you know about going from over sixty percent to twenty percent in a space of seven years. Um, this is possible, and this is possible 
because we can ramp up wind and solar as well as storage in pumped hydro and batteries very, very rapidly and at reasonable cost. And we will be building um, a very cheap and reliable and almost completely clean energy system of the future. It's gorgeous, right? But it requires an enormous effort and it requires enormous investments over the next decade, decade and a half, right? And we want to get this done by 2030. It requires these kinds of um, really, really huge efforts right now, right? And, and a lot has happened. A lot of investment has been made. And we need to even ramp that up from that. And that means new transmission lines. And that means new energy storage facilities. That means a lot more wind and solar. That means uh, speeding up planning and approval processes, right? That means um, being absolutely sure that private investors are not spooked by regulatory or market uncertainty. A lot of things need to come together to achieve that outcome. We see state governments supporting this in various ways. We see the federal government now uh, with uh, various approaches to provide additional support where state governments are perhaps not uh, fully on top of supporting this fully. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's not a given. It's not a done thing. And really, you know, I mean, there needs to be increasing awareness in society overall, just how big this task is, right? And I wanted Um, to come back to something you said before. mm. You said a decade ago or more than a decade ago, the Rudd government failed to bring the country with him. And I'm wondering whether this is happening now a bit again, that we're seeing history repeat itself because you have households, being buffeted by big power price hikes. You're seeing farmers upset and protesting about new transmission lines being built on their land where they feel they haven't been consulted. Are we again in the situation of not being able to rally the country behind this? It's easy when it looks like there's no downsides, right? Um, and there's, there's been easy wins in Australia on greenhouse gas emissions reductions. Um, many aspects of the call to renewable uh, transition kind of run themselves and are economically profitable and all the rest of it. As we go deeper in reducing emissions, you know, sort of below 50%, kind of thing. We're getting to the more difficult things, especially if we want to do it fast. If we had the time to just wait it out and let that transition unfold very gradually into the 2050s, 2060s, right, then there'd be very little pain, right? But as you speed it up, right, you get to the more difficult uh, decisions, right? And we need to be conscious that not all of this will be easy. And you mentioned farmers, for example, you mentioned local communities and, you know, Um, One of the largest concerns is, of course, about those parts of the country where the fossil fuel industries, both coal mining, gas extraction, and using those fossil fuels, for example, in chemical production and and so forth. Um, The big concern is about job losses and declining industries in these places and in these communities um, and and what that will do in terms of, uh, you know, slowing that transition. And the focus more and more um, is uh, on, on, like you say, buffeting that, that transition. Um, and the key, to my mind, really is absolutely to look at alternative economic futures for those regions and for those communities. 
And thankfully, uh, in contrast to many, many other countries, we have a very clear opportunity and also a clear vision as to what that economic future in the regions can be. Uh, and very much uh, of that revolves around renewable energy-based industries. I want to briefly talk about transport in this country and the transition there. You flagged that Australia's transport emissions aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're rising rather than falling. We've been very slow in rolling out the infrastructure, not only for electric vehicles, small electric vehicles, but also even for things like public transport and electric buses. Why are we so slow on this? Well, we are heavily road transport dependent economy, both for goods and personal transport. And so uh, road expansion has been the default mode of catering for population increase, really. And of course, you know, we've had a succession of governments who uh, very unfortunately, uh, I think in my view, used the, the issue of car-based mobility as a point of political distinction and you know, almost sort of culture war type territory over electric cars versus combustion cars. I think we're very clearly past this. Um, and uh, you know, the road is open to mm-hmm. electrification of road transport. So we're seeing enormously fast uptake of electric cars now, uh, even though the upfront capital cost is still higher. Um, you know, the total lifetime cost of running an electric car is probably just about on par now for most models. Um, and we're seeing a, a really rapid embrace of that uh, very broad, is very positive development. There'll be some policy measures that will actually increase supply of electric cars into Australia. That's a good thing. But of course, then what we've done is um, we've, uh, we've greatly improved the environmental balance of road transport in that way. We will see battery electric also for transport, even for trucks down the, down the road. Um, but we haven't solved the problems of congestion and all of the other negative externality of road-based transport. We need a much better train system in this country, uh, ultimately to also displace uh, many of these short-haul flights uh, that are so big in Australia. So there's a quite a fundamental um, uh, revolution that's, that's actually needed in our transport systems, as in many other systems, and that requires a lot of upfront investment. Right? This won't be cheap, but it'll be the foundation uh, of a better transport system that'll serve us well for the next 100 years. You have in the past written a lot about hydrogen. You understand where this debate is going. I wanted to raise it with you because, as you know, at one point people thought hydrogen would be the fuel for the new vehicles. There was a lot of talk, even by Ross Garner, uh, about hydrogen being a huge industry for Australia and that it could replace gas and oil. That doesn't seem to be happening now. There seems to be much less optimism about the role that green hydrogen can play. As someone who's looked at this a lot, what do you think? Where are we going with this idea of hydrogen uh, becoming the big alternative fuel? Yeah, so hydrogen will have a role, an important role, in the future decarbonised world energy and industrial system. Full stop. We know that. That that remains. Um, The question is how large will that role be? And in particular, what role will hydrogen play in transport? 
Okay. And just to step back uh, a little, hydrogen is a beautiful thing because it can, at the point of use, it is completely clean, right? There's no exhaust emissions of any kind, and it can be produced in a totally clean way as well through electrolysis. There's other production methods. Currently, most of global hydrogen produced is a very dirty fuel because it's derived from coal, but it can be produced from renewable energy uh, and thereby be a completely carbon-free Uh, production chain. Uh, The trouble is you lose a lot of the primary energy invested into it on the road from electricity to hydrogen and from hydrogen back to electricity or other forms of usable energy. That's the difficulty, right? And so you're kind of starting behind the curve in uh, in a competition with renewable energy use directly, right? And so the idea is... um, Uh, you know, can you produce hydrogen in locations where renewable energy is excessively cheap and then use it in applications where renewable energy is not so cheap? For the transport system in particular, competition is with batteries because batteries are, of course, very highly efficient. You know, the energy loss is is 10% or less, um, right? Um, And so... um, Uh, The idea was always that batteries might be either too expensive or too heavy to use in larger vehicles like trucks. We're now coming to the point where batteries are becoming so cheap that uh, they're they're winning the race over hydrogen even for larger, heavier vehicles, right? And so there you see your hydrogen market shrinking a little. But the largest share of hydrogen use in a future economy, as we see it now, will be in industry. There's industrial processes that require molecular energy input. And uh, steel production, iron ore refining is chief among them. Um, Fertilizer production is among them. Various uh, industrial products that, that you currently use gas as an input can use hydrogen as an alternative input. And these are all opportunities uh, for hydrogen to play an important role in global decarbonization. There's also other energy carriers that aren't hydrogen, but that will also rely on clean energy uh, and provide those opportunities. Ammonia, methanol, synthetic fuels, including synthetic fuels for aircraft. This is absolutely Uh, you know, not just a theoretical possibility, but something that's already being done. And it's a question of bringing down the cost of these uh, energy chemical production systems to rival the costs uh, of fossil fuels. uh, And then we are where we need to be. Well, that brings me to, I suppose, the most recent IPCC report that you worked on. And what that report told us is the clock is ticking for all this to happen. I think the UN Secretary General called it the climate change time bomb. So there's a limited time in which this can happen. You worked on that report. And when it came out, you said in one of your interviews, I think what the report tells us is that we're up the proverbial creek. But you, the optimist, said, we still have a paddle. What did you mean by that? Yeah, and I borrowed that quote from Jim Ski, one of the (laughs) co-chairs of the Working Group on Mitigation. That's it, right? The message really is we're already seeing massive impacts from climate change. We know this is absolutely going to get worse. You know, uh, 1.5 degrees is basically gone, even though it's a worthwhile ambition. It's not one that we will meet in terms of staying below 1.5 degrees. So we're absolutely up 
that quake, but it's not like we're helpless. We can still steer our trajectory on that. Uh, and perhaps uh, we're even able to paddle back a little, a little way into a ba- better direction, right? And this is, this is precisely the message that reflects reality and the message that needs to reach the broader community and politicians in particular. It's a dire situation, but not a hopeless one. And in fact, in terms of that paddle, right, that paddle has got larger over the years because we now know that we can reduce emissions more quickly and at lower cost than we thought just seven years ago at the time of, of the last IPCC assessment, right? And the reason for that is technological progress, right? The crucial clean energy technologies have all reduced in their cost by factors that we would not have imagined, right? Solar energy, solar panels, 10 times cheaper than 12 years ago. Lithium batteries, right? At price points now, that five years ago we thought would never, ever be achieved, right? And this, this opens opportunities for relatively low-cost new energy systems that are carbon-free uh, that we did not imagine um, would be available to us uh, in the 2020s, right? Same for, uh, for transport, for example. You know, when we worked on a deep decarbonization pathway study in 2014 and we put out what at the time was a really radical picture of decarbonization in Australia, and many people thought we had gone crazy, right? We look at some of these assumptions in that 2014 report, right? We thought that things would happen, particularly in transport, in the 2030s, maybe early 2040s, that we now see unfold in the 2020s already. So the picture of what we can do is continually improving. Um, And so that's really the fundamental uh, source of uh, realistic optimism. I wanted to ask you about young people today. We're seeing a lot of young people taking to direct action We're seeing them sometimes take very risky uh, action as a protest against fossil fuels. When you ask them why, they say that they're angry, they're frustrated. At the same time, governments are clamping down on these protests. But I wonder, you have students this age, are they angry and frustrated that we're not going fast enough and that they do fear that we have lost the 1.5 ambition? Oh, absolutely. So uh, there's a great feeling of loss, really. Um, But um, uh, on the positive side of the ledger, there's a great energy for change, right? And so I think it's fair to say that a really sizable share of our young generation does do not accept um, that the system overall can, would, or should continue in its present form in terms of, you know, heavy on material consumption, uh, kind of stuck in its old ways and this kind of thing, right? The assumption in that generation that's coming up is that we will change things, right? Because we must, right? And I mean, to me, that is a very, very powerful driver of change. And I think we can look back at several kind of youth movements through the ages that at the time, perhaps, you know, to the older generation looked like a folly or, you know, something that is perhaps, you know, 
um, shooting for the stars in a totally unrealistic way. And then that then 20, 30 years down the track is actually, you know, what is mainstream um, and, and, and what is the new way of doing things, right? In terms of our students, I mean, we see um, a tremendous increase in interest in topics around climate change, environmental sustainability in the board, energy transition, industrial transition, um, and, you know, by and large, the outlook um, of our students, in particular in postgraduate programs where I teach, uh, is, is, is a somber one, but also one um, of seeking the opportunities. And I think, you know, the concern that we see among uh, younger people um, will by and large translate uh, into stronger action on the track. Well, one of the things that is driving that protest, I think, is partly what's, what is happening with the fossil fuel companies because especially since the war in Ukraine, there seems to be uh, an upsurge in the uh, fossil fuels profits and exploration for new fields of development. And it's, it appears in this rush to, if you like, exploit the energy crisis they're losing sight of the Paris Agreement. And I think it was just last week, Exxon, the biggest oil company in the world, came out and said that society won't accept the degradation of its standard of living required to meet net zero. When you hear things like that, um, does that give you pause that maybe this is going to be even harder than you think? Well, degradation of standards of living to achieve net zero is bulldust. So this is a self-interested interpretation or statement um, by companies that are fully invested uh, into the old way of doing things. And we've seen this, of course, you know, I mean, you've researched that, Marion, mm-hmm. on many occasions, um, you know, the way that industries that have their backs against the wall uh, fight uh, in, in this transition. It's, of course, entirely unsurprising that you get uh, these kinds of statements. And, you know, these companies also have a lot of money to spend uh, on lobbying campaigns, right, uh, on social media, um, on keeping politicians on their side and all the rest of it, right? So we're seeing a, a transition of a significant part of the world economy. Um, you know, there's many, many trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars of value on the line, and corporations will fight tooth and nail in this. Uh, so you, you get these kinds of perspectives uh, out there, and, you know, no one, no one said it was going to be easy. In terms of fossil fuel resurgence, okay, so with Russia's war on Ukraine, mainly what we're seeing uh, is a shift in global trade patterns and in in a resulting way a slight shift in global extraction patterns for fossil fuels, right? Because essentially what's happening... Uh, is a stop to gas and oil exports from Russia to Western Europe, right? That's the main thing that's happening. Um, Russia will attempt to redirect its fossil fuel exports, right, to South Asia, to East Asia, but that takes time because pipelines need to be built, ports need to be built, et cetera, et cetera. In the meantime, right, you've got less Russian oil and gas in world markets, and that needs to be backfilled by other suppliers, right? That's why we have elevated fossil fuel prices, and that's why we're getting a little bit of a sort of a a straw fire in terms of 
um, you know, elevated fossil fuel uh, extraction elsewhere. But in a global picture, it's not like we're using more fossil fuels as a result of the of Russia's war in Ukraine. It's just a redirection of where that fossil fuel comes from. In the longer term, this war that's going on in Europe will drive a faster move to renewable energy. There's no doubt about that. And the reason for that is a greater, much, much greater emphasis on energy supply security, right? Western Europe, as a large energy importer, is asking very serious questions about their dependence on fossil fuel imports. Questions they should have asked themselves 10, 20 years ago. They're asking themselves now. And the obvious answer is to rely much more on locally produced energy. If you're not sitting on the wealth of fossil fuel reserves, then locally produced energy means renewables or nuclear, which are clean. Okay, that's the answer. This goes for many other energy importers as well. And so this will hasten investment in renewable energy technology and deployment. And this will make renewable energy technologies once again cheaper than they were even before. So that's the big long-term effect. In terms of opening new oil and gas fields and so forth, right, um, it's clear to the global fossil fuel industry, right, that this is the end game. The end game for coal is coming first, that for oil and gas is coming later. And we're talking about an end game that will play out over decades. Nevertheless, this is a declining trajectory. And in that declining trajectory, everyone's incentive is to exploit the resources that they have as quickly as possible in order to make the money now rather than not make the money in the future when you can't make that money anymore. So we're seeing that rush to market, uh, in a sense, uh, to, to you know, enjoy it while it lasts. Will they lose money, in your view, by doing this? So new fossil fuel extraction and use projects with long payback periods on capital are at risk of being stranded, are at risk of turning out to be loss-making enterprises depending on the speed of transition. So any company investing heavily in long-lived fossil fuel assets infrastructure is taking a big gamble with their shareholders' money um, on the climate transition to take place more slowly uh, than it should and can. Well, you've been advising on these issues for a long time. I wonder now, in 2023, if you could get Australia's state and federal ministers in one of your lecture rooms, what do you think would be the main advice you would give them today? The main advice would be to look at the long-term economic prosperity of this country, develop a clear vision for what our economy looks like uh, in, a, in, a, in a very positive way in the 2040s, in the 2050s, uh, and then take a firm view with a really clear strategy of how we're going to get there without too much delay uh, and in a way that brings the Australian public along, right? And really, I think where that then takes people, um, politicians, governments, um, will be to create a very inclusive conversation about this, put on the table all the difficulties, all of the opportunities, and turn it from what has been sort of a, a game of political football, right? Stop doing that, right? And make it a national endeavour, right? 
Most politicians are looking for opportunities for nation building. This is the big opportunity for nation building, right? Let's do this together and be cognizant of the fact that we'll actually be spending a lot of money. But we're not going to spend it on stuff that is here today and gone tomorrow. We'll be spending it on the infrastructure and the systems that will build the next wave of what will keep this country running for 100 years easily. Right? And that is now that we've got to make these, these investments. And it's really, you know, you can take it back to a generational question. It is now, right, the generation that's in charge with all the big decisions is also the generation that got some of these big decisions a bit wrong early on. And the younger people are pointing to that generation saying, why are you leaving us this mess? The opportunity is now to actually build a clean energy and clean transport and clean industry infrastructure that this next generation will benefit from for a very long time to come. Well, Frank Jotso, it has been a pleasure talking to you. And can I ask you to join me in a round of applause for Frank? To follow our program online, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And to visit the 100 Climate Conversations exhibition or join us for a live recording, go to 100climateconversations.com. Records of these conversations will form a new climate change archive preserved for future generations in the powerhouse collection of over 500,000 objects that tell the stories of our time. See more from the museum at Powerhouse on Twitter and at Powerhouse Museum on Instagram and Facebook.